67, so I invite you to open up your Bibles. We'll continue uh, to wrap up the book of Isaiah. And as we take a look tonight, we want to remind ourselves that the groundwork was set back in Isaiah 53 for how God will um, change the lives of Israel, you and I and whoever else, to become the people that God wants us to be. We, we can be... We can be transformed, right, into the image of his son. Isaiah chapter 53 laid that out for us. The suffering servant was going to be the one who would make a way for the Israel that Isaiah had been preaching to and speaking to to become the Israel that they could be. And the same is true for us. That's how we become who we need to be. So in 53, there's a shift. And the rest of the book of Isaiah is focused on that shift. And when we come to Isaiah 57... There's uh, some interesting points that, that uh, Isaiah the prophet is laying out for us. One of those is this, this um, example of the difference between the holy and the hateful. And it's funny because if you look at Isaiah 57 in light of current events, it's, uh, it's really not that hard to see uh, the things that are going on. Let's take a look at it. Isaiah 57, beginning at verse 1. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. There's an idea, a, a concept spoken of by the prophets throughout the scripture that talk about one of the judgments of God being the removal of the righteous. In, in other words, you, you have the righteous. The righteous are in our midst as a witness to call people to repentance Uh, to direct people toward change. But the further down the road we travel, the less righteous you will have. We saw an example of that in the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. Northern kingdom, uh, ten tribes, right? They decide they're going to do worship a different way. They're not going to worship God. They're going to worship the golden calf. Uh, They set them up so that people won't go to Jerusalem anymore. Now, initially, when this division occurs, there are righteous in the north, and there are righteous in the south. There are unrighteous in the north, and there are unrighteous in the south. But what occurs as a result uh, of God's judgment over the wickedness of the people, the righteous begin to move south. Why? Because that's where they can still worship Yahweh. And the unrighteous, they get to where they want to move north. And when we see the fall of the northern kingdom, you look at a study of the kings of the northern kingdom, there was not one godly king ever. Not one. And when the righteous were perishing, when they're leaving, when they're dying out, or when they're going away, nobody cares. And if you think about the way our world is today, there would be quite the celebration if them... Self-righteous Christians would all just go away or certainly be quiet. Nobody cares. And one of the things that God is saying is he's looking at this situation that's happening in Israel. Israel becomes like a microcosm of the world. And in Israel you have this, this unrighteousness is creeping in and a denial of God or, a, or not pursuing a relationship with him leads to exile. Or whether you... Whether you say God exiled me or, or you exiled yourself, it doesn't make any difference. If you are not seeking a relationship with God, you are in exile. You might not know it, but 
but you're not where you could be. And if you're in that place under God's judgment, you don't care. You're not looking for a way out. You just want all that other stuff to go away. And so you see in, in Isaiah 57, 1, this idea that righteous man perishes and no one cares. No one lays it to heart. doesn't matter to anyone. Devout men are taken away and no one understands. Nobody recognizes what's happening. You see the exact same kind of thing happening in a, in a church that is uh, no longer following the Lord. Eventually there are not going to be any Christians in the church. Right? Where are Christians? They're going to go somewhere where somebody is teaching the truth of the Word of God. And what are you left with? Then you're left with a congregation of people who aren't saved and they don't care. Because they're happy with the way things are. The righteous have departed and nobody cares. And then here's what God says. He says at the end of verse 1, For the righteous man is taken away from Calamity. If you have New King James or King James, it says from evil. But the idea is God's judgment. The righteous man is taken away from God's judgment. The scripture declares that the believer is not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that point meaning, if God is bringing his judgment, he, he will bring his people out first. At 70 AD in Jerusalem. When Jesus told his disciples, when you see this city surrounded by enemies, get out. You see the church in Jerusalem do a unique thing. The church in Jerusalem, as they're growing, as they're developing, they sold all their possessions and they had all things in common. And they gave to one another as anyone had need. Doesn't that sound wonderful? But the, the end result was they became poor. And so Paul, in his missionary journeys, travels around to the other churches taking up an offering for who? The poor in Jerusalem. And you think, well, this is weird. And you only see that occur in Jerusalem. It happens in Jerusalem, but it doesn't happen in Antioch. It doesn't happen in other places. And we ask ourselves, why? Well, in 70 AD, when the armies surround Jerusalem and they begin to starve the city out... There are multiple times, just like when Nebuchadnezzar did it, that they, Titus Vespasian is saying, hey, if you want to live, get out. If you want to die, stay in. And the people who had property and houses and businesses and banks full of money, they said, Bob, we can't leave. But the people who didn't have anything, they just walked out. Bible says that the righteous man is taken away from calamity. So as the church was following Christ, even though they're poor and everybody's thinking, what a dumb bunch of people doing this thing that they did with one another, they're the ones who left Jerusalem and lived. As a result of God's, what I would call God's sovereign providence in their life. Now that doesn't mean God can't supernaturally take somebody out, right? We see that with Lot. The Bible says Lot was a righteous man. I don't understand it, but that's what the Bible says. And before God brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, what did the angels do? They came and they did what? They said, Lot, we cannot judge this city while you're here. And they grab him by the hand and drag him out. In the end, that's how he gets out of the city. The righteous man is taken away from calamity. 
God's wrath is not appointed to his people. That doesn't mean God's people don't go through persecution. It doesn't mean hard things don't happen. It just means when they do, it's not God's wrath. It's not God's wrath that is being dumped out. The righteous man is taken away from calamity. So in the northern kingdom, when the righteous men move south so that they can continue to worship Yahweh freely, when they moved to the south and the north fell under judgment, what happened? The righteous men were gone. They were in the south. And the people in the north were like good riddance. And the funny thing is, it kind of seems like that's the shift in our world. I don't know where we go. Maybe Jesus Jesus comes back and just takes us all home. I'm okay with that. I'm all right with that. The righteous man is taken away from calamity. But listen to verse 2 because this is important. He enters into peace. And they rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. He enters into peace. <clears throat> he enters into rest. When does that happen? When he dies. And maybe they're all killed out. That certainly is a possibility. The, the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, you're introduced to a whole lot of martyrs underneath the altar, right? How'd they get there? They didn't get there because God delivered them from persecution. They get there because they were faithful unto death. And they entered into their peace. They rest now. In fact, when Jesus is talking to the martyrs in the book of Revelation, he says to them, rest a little while longer until your number is complete. <coughs> they, have, they are resting and have and are resting from their from their work, from their labor. Well, in Micah 7, 2, listen to this. It says, The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all wait, they all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. And the idea is that's, that's always been the way of mankind in the kingdoms of men. To wipe out the righteous. The righteous are a witness. The first thing that... that uh, the darkness wants to accomplish is to extinguish the light. If they can, they will. God in his loving kindness leaves light in a place, but there will come a time when God will say, that's it, that's all the light you get. And then he'll, he will leave them to their darkness. Psalm 116 verse 15 says, that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. God loves the death of his saint. He loves his saint. He loves it when they come home, when they enter into peace, when they're with him. Revelation fourteen thirteen says this, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their deeds will follow them. Having lived their lives well. But, the prophet is saying, the people who are left behind, they don't care. They don't care. It doesn't matter to them. They're, they're excited that they're gone. And part of the problem is that they've substituted a relationship with the living God for a religious system, religious activities, cultic practices. I don't mean occultic practices. Cultic practices are those things that we do in order to appease God. 
So maybe today some people say, well, I go to church once a week, or I go twice a week, or I was baptized when I was six years old, or eight years old, or 16, or when I was 20, or we talk about the little things, the little check marks we got on our report card. Those are all cultic practices. The point that God's looking for is, do you know me? That's what the Lord says. Do you know me? Do you know me? <clears throat> Are you faithful to me? Look what it says, verse 3. But you, speaking to the rest of the people, the righteous have been taken. You <clears throat> draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. There's a description throughout Proverbs that describes um, this, this godly woman as lady wisdom and the immoral woman as the one who wants to pull men away or pull people away from following and obedience to god it's not so much a question about morality at least here it's more a metaphor for idolatry right god says i want you to know me and i want you to be faithful we all want that from our spouse nobody says i want to choose a spouse who will be unfaithful to me so God is saying, I want your faithfulness. But here he's saying, you're sons of the sorceress. You're children of the immoral woman, the one who leads men astray. You're followers of the one who is walking not in the way of wisdom, but in the way of the fool. In Proverbs, the way of the fool says what? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The immoral woman. This is that example. He says, you're sons of the, of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer, the loose woman. This is a description. You're mixing into your life idolatry. You're being unfaithful to me by being faithful to false gods. You're walking in idolatry. You're mixing it into your life. Verse 4. And then he says, well, whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your, your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression and offspring of deceit? Now, again, this is something that we can see. You certainly can have the opportunity to see this if you want to. Um, Tuesday and Wednesday, Bill's out at uh, Planned Parenthood again. So if you want to see mocking and people who are unwilling to engage in truth, you can go out to it. You can go sit on a corner. I hear all the time people tell me about all the poor people who are so misled. But that's not the people who are talking to me on the corner. The people who are talking to me on the corner know exactly what they're doing. There's no, there's no, they're not fooled. I'm not saying there's not any. But that's different. And, and the willingness to engage, to have a meaningful conversation, well, very often... And I know that God's raising up some people to pursue political agenda and hallelujah, knock yourself out. I cannot sit in a room full of liars. It's bad enough when I come to church. So I don't want to go deal with politicians. I'd rather just talk to the real person on the corner. But one of the things that mocks those who are in rebellion against God, who are unfaithful to him, who have stepped into saying, you know what, I love the darkness, not the light. They mock. They mock. They're mockers. They open wide their mouth. They, they, uh, it's, it's, I've seen some of the craziest things I, 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 I would say that I'll ever see, but there's always tomorrow. So, 
But I, I would say I've seen the craziest things I'll ever see. But people nowadays, once upon a time, you could actually engage in a meaningful conversation with a person. Now, if somebody disagrees with you, they're so used to Facebook, they think that a, a meme is the answer to all life's problems. Everybody does. So I, I see every time a political conversation starts, a meme goes up. And then another meme goes up. And then another meme, like as though these are facts or something. What are we doing? Put up a picture. You can say anything you want. It doesn't make it true. But nobody's after the truth. There's not a willingness to engage in truth. There's just an attitude that wants to mock. And there's an attitude of manipulation. They call the offspring of deceit. Children of the lie. It's not, look, I don't want to know, I don't want to know the truth. I'm happy with my lie. I'm happy with accepting this lie in my life and just going on. That's what happens when we reject the truth. That's what happens in a culture. This is what the Lord is describing. He's describing a culture who is satisfied with the loss of the righteous. They're lost their, the, the witness of light in their, in their midst, and now they're being enveloped by the darkness. What mocks them, they'll be, or what marks them, they'll be mockers, and they'll use manipulation. Um, they're children of transgression. A transgression means they know what they're doing is wrong. That's what Romans 1 says. They are without excuse because they know what they're doing. But it doesn't matter because they like what they're doing. That's what happens. In verse 5, he goes on, You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock. So now, this idolatry moves into the two things that most commonly marked idolatry in the ancient world, and for the most part, it's still true today. Fertility worship and child sacrifice. Fertility worship was sex. Most, 90%, maybe more than that, 90% of the pagan religious systems in the ancient world were built around sex. What do you want? Well, you, do you think it's any different today? No. What is the number one highest grossing money-making business in the United States of America? Pornography. Why? Because we still want the fertility cult. What did the fertility cult sell? Free, open sexuality. Any way you want it, any time, any day. Don't worry about it. You can engage in any kind of sexual activity that you want to engage in. Everything is fine. And if, by chance, one of our priestesses or someone else gets pregnant, don't worry about it. We have child sacrifice. We won't have to worry about the child messing up your inheritance. This is not new. Man's been doing this for thousands of years. So God says to them, he says to them in verse 5, look, you burn with lust. You can't wait to do this. Look, this is exactly our world. Exactly our world. Every single TV show you turn on, uh, there is none good, no, not one. None. It cracks me up. Um, I don't know how long ago it was. Whenever Netflix went on the news and said if they don't repeal the law in Georgia, we're going to uh, uh, stop filming, all filming in Georgia, I got rid of Netflix. Uh, and Stranger Things was just coming out. Breaks my heart. But hey, that's how it is. They picked, they picked the battleground. I didn't. They made the announcement, not me. So 
Then I thought, well, I'll see if I can find something to watch somewhere else. So I watched a couple of shows the other night, and it was, I was, that's, there's nothing good. I don't care what show you think is good. Once upon a time, there actually was shows on TV, real TV, where you turned on like Channel 2, Channel 4, there were shows. That's not the world we live in anymore. Now you got to have cable, or you got to have Netflix, or you got to have Amazon, or you got to have Disney Channel, or you got to have somebody. And every single one of them is throwing up garbage that says righteousness is evil, and evil is righteousness. Good for evil, evil for good. Light for darkness, darkness for light. Jesus said that's how it would be. It's exactly how it is. It's exactly how it is. And what do they all have in common? They all have in common this clamor for sexual freedom. To be able to express myself sexually any way I want. And, and who's anybody else to tell me different? And we think that's new. We think that just happened. No, it didn't. It's been going on for a long time. It was part of a false religious system back in the day. It's part of a false religious system now. But when the righteous don't speak, darkness prevails. That's how that works. So he says, look, you, not only do you lust uh, among the oaks under every green tree, that's like literal. The idea is that when they worshipped uh, pagan uh, fertility cults, they would go out to the grove and that's where they would engage in their sexual activities. And you'd make an offering to whatever the church was, whatever the, the worship was, and you'd run off with uh, some boy or girl or man or woman, and you'd uh, participate in whatever you were going to do. And then you would come back thinking, man, that was a great worship service. And then afterwards, what's it say? And then you slaughter your children in the valleys. The result of that was you had a lot of unwanted pregnancies. And that this that's another thing that's not new. So he said, the Lord says, you slaughter your children in the valley under the cleft of the rock. You slaughter them to Molech, who will come up in just a moment. Verse 6, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? The Lord says, look, all these smooth stones, all these places where you go worship, smooth stone. They'd set up the smooth stones out in the woods. That's where they would participate in their events, the things that they were doing. That's where they would sacrifice their children. The Lord says, you're pouring out your drink offerings and your grain offerings to false gods. Why are you calling me? Go call them. Shall I relent? Should I just turn my eyes away from the wickedness? Should I just say, oh, nothing's happening? It's not real. Should I accept your sacrifices when you try to, to mix in a religious system? Well, you know, I know, I know I've been doing these things that, that God doesn't want me to. Well, really, what's the big deal? Everybody's doing it. I'm just gonna, I'll just come to church. I'll just go, I'll just, uh, you know, whatever. Whatever thing we think we have to do to appease the Lord. God's saying, should I, should I pay attention to your sacrifices? Should I look at your offering? Verse 7, he says, On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. <laughs> On a high and lofty mountain. Man, you're full of pride about it. You, you think it's a badge of honor. So they 
have a special parade. And they announce, hey, I can do whatever I want to do any way I want to, and who are you to judge me? So they stand before their maker, the one who put them together, and he says, why, why do you love the darkness so much? And then we, we, we love to, to just, I told you, everybody likes meme theology. Well, I guess I'll, I can just never know love then. Who, who said that? That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you, nothing about you can't know love. The Bible's pretty clear. When you hated God, he loved you. Your, your, your desire for the darkness is the question, not whether or not you can know love. Whether or not you can do whatever you want. You know, when we get right down to it, none of us actually believe that, right? You can do whatever you want. You, you really believe that? What happens when I do something you don't like? Oh, I can't do that. What do you mean? I said I could do whatever I want. This is what I want. No. Nobody really believes that. That's just empty assertions, blowing smoke. It's not accomplishing anything that God wants. It's the rise of pride in the heart of men. Listen to Obadiah, verse 3. It says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock... In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like an eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Well, it doesn't matter how tall you are. It doesn't matter how tall the building is. It doesn't matter how safe you think you are. You're never as safe as you think. We remember what happened on this day. And we can focus on it's all the uh, attack of wicked men. Or we could say, man, we have not been obedient, Lord. Why does the hedge come down from Israel? Why does God stop protecting the nation? Because she decides she loves these other gods, this other worship, this other stuff. And so God says, stop calling me. I leave you to your own. And then when something goes wrong, everybody's clamoring, Lord, save us. You remember my name now, God says? You remember me now? Funny how that is. But in reality, we see a nation, our nation has turned away from the light. So you don't know that, you're not paying attention. And I don't care what news service you watch, we have turned away from the light. We are swift to shed innocent blood. We are the bloodiest, most violent nation on the earth. We are. We stopped being a Christian nation a long time ago. We're still trying to clamor on to a past that most people don't remember. How do we get back? The righteous, they're still here. What do the righteous do? The Lord says, I look to and fro for someone to stand in the gap. I looked, but there was no one. 
That's not the case yet. There are still men and women who will stand. Verse 8 says, behind the door and the doorpost, you set up your memorial. Behind the door. Where were they supposed to put the memorial? Where, where does the memorial go? The memorial goes on the doorpost, right? It was a, it was a <clears throat> menorah. It's set there to remind them that their house is supposed to be built on the word of God. But where does it say they put it? Behind the door. Behind, we don't want nobody to see it. It might be offensive. It might be offensive. I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm going to keep my relationship or my pursuit or my religious ideas secret. Uh, That's what you're supposed to do with religious ideas, right? Behind the door and the doorpost, you set up your memorial for deserting me. Once upon a time, I used to worry, man, I, I'm so, I don't want to offend anybody, you know. I don't want to be, I'm not trying to, I'm never trying to be rude, but I don't want to offend anybody. Somebody asked me one time, what does it look like to Jesus when you just won't say anything? Won't admit you know him, don't want to talk about him. Didn't Jesus have something to say about that? What was that verse? Deny me before men and... Oh, you guys have heard it before too. Deny me before men and I'll deny you before my father. One of the things that Isaiah is going to talk about here in chapter 57 is there no fear of the Lord in you? Is there no fear of the Lord? In the righteous, there always is. As the righteous says, oh, Lord, forgive me. I messed up. Lord, help me to be stronger the next time. That's what the righteous do. That's what the righteous do. They're looking for that opportunity. He says, you have deserted me. You have uncovered your bed and you have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. <clears throat> you have loved their bed and you have looked on their nakedness. You've hid the memorials that are a, a sign that you belong to me. You've hid those things, but you're open about everything else. You're open. You've made your bed wide. You're opening up to all types of false religious systems. You're opening up to sexual immorality. Uh, you're looking upon their nakedness. You're like, hey, this is what I want. You're given the excuse just like everybody else. Everybody else did it. Why shouldn't I? What's the big deal? Won't God forgive me? You've uncovered your bed. There's a a system in marriage, in a Jewish wedding, where you have the canopy over your bed. And that canopy is what you're married under. The chuppah. You, when people got married, they got married under the chuppah, and the chuppah went over your bed. That's where the canopy beds came from. You know what the chuppah is? It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the covering of God over your marriage, the covering of God over your bed. Not so that your bed became some weird thing where nobody ever participated in sexual release. That's what marriage was made for. God said, no, keep my covering on your bed. The marriage bed is undefilable and holy. That's pretty awesome. But here it says you've removed the covering. 
You've taken the covering of God over your relationship, over uh, um, your bed, and you're throwing it out. And you just open up the bed for whatever. You just open it up for whatever, whoever wants to come, whatever wants to be a part of. This is all not just a, it's a metaphor for idolatry and unfaithfulness to God, but it's also a, an example of their uh, sexual expression. Then in verse 9, he says, you journeyed to the king. That word king is a word Molech. That's what, that's who Molech was. He's the king. Molech. You don't know Molech. Uh, Molech was the little idol upon which you sacrifice your children. He says, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You got all dressed up and you put all this perfume on and you went to Molech and you took oil to Molech. And you sent your envoys far off, searching answers from other gods. You even sent them down to Sheol. You would go to hell for an answer before you'll come to me. You sent them to Sheol. How'd this all start? You went to the wrong king. You're seeking the wrong king. Men have always been infatuated with self-worship. I mean, ultimately, that's, that's the only God we really like is ourself. Who I am, what I do, what I will do. Light had come. But men wouldn't come to the light because they loved the darkness. John chapter 1. Among men, Jesus came as a light among men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. But the men in the darkness didn't come to the light because they love the dark, for their deeds are evil. Love the dark. They love the dark. They love the dark. They want to be, they want to make sacrifice to the dark. So what happens? Look at verse 10. And you were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say, it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength so that you were not faint. Now here's what God's saying. There's, there's this idea. Three things are going to come out of these next couple of verses. You have confidence in yourself. I'm strong enough to overcome. You have a complacency of God. It means there's no fear of God in your life. You don't, you don't care about what God thinks. And you have made self-effort your goal. Ah, we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We can get better. He said, you didn't say it's hopeless. You you found new life in your strength, so you were not faint. And whom did you dread and fear, so that you lied and didn't remember me? Were you, were you afraid to lie to me? No. Do not lay it to heart. Have I not held my peace even for a long time? It's funny to me because I just saw a post today on Facebook. Every time I read Facebook, I want to quit. And then there's another day and I didn't quit. So I'm reading stuff on Facebook. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Facebook stalker. I never post. I don't like, I used to post and now I don't like to post because I, it causes bad thoughts in my brain. So now I read, which still is causing the same bad thoughts in my brain. So eventually it will all go away. But I guess it's a worthwhile tool currently. But I saw a post about a guy saying, oh, something about the God of the Old Testament and all he did was kill people all the time. And and I'm like, have you ever read the Old Testament? 
drives me crazy when people say that. All God wants to do is kill people all the time. Have you read it? Or are you just reading a meme? Somebody made a picture. The God of the Old Testament wanted to kill somebody all the time. What did, what did the Lord just say right here? Have I not held my peace? Before judgment ever came to the Canaanites, and it did come to them, there was 430 years that God just said, I held my peace. I waited for you to turn. I waited for you to stop. I guarantee there's not one parent here who waited 430 years to whoop their child. (laughs) There's not one person here who has a a dog or a cat that waited 430 years to whoop a dog or a cat who'd done something wrong. The Bible is full from Genesis to Revelation of the long suffering of God desiring that no one would perish because when God judges, people go to hell. That's why God doesn't like to judge. So he sent out his prophets. You heard of one. His name was Jonah. Go to Nineveh. The people are so wicked. I'm going to have to judge them. I need to send a prophet to Nineveh. Jonah's like, I hate those people. I want them to die. I'm not going. So he goes the opposite way. And then he, Jonah's pretty sure he's got God. God sends a storm. And Jonah's like, you think this storm's going to turn us around? Hey, you guys want the storm to stop? Throw me in the water. I'd rather die than go to Nineveh. That was Jonah's plan. He had no idea that God could circumvent his plan. Jonah gets tossed over the side and ends up bait for a big fish who swims him to Nineveh and spits him up on the shore. Yeah, you're going to Nineveh. And Jonah's bitter about the whole thing, so he marches through the city saying, 40 days hence, and you're all dead. The Bible says the king took off his kingly garments and put on sackcloth and ashes and repented. And all the people followed suit. And God didn't judge. There's another book called Nahum. Nahum's another prophet. God said, oh, the people in Nineveh, they're, they're, out, of, they're out of whack again. Nahum, go talk to them. People didn't repent that time. You can say the Old Testament's full of a God who's just killing everybody. But if you are, you haven't read it. Actually requires effort. To know what it is that the Bible says. It requires no effort to punch a bunch of keys on a computer and put something on Facebook though. Anybody can do that. And then you don't have to defend it. You just say it. And then unfriend anybody who argues with you. (laughs) He goes on in verse 13. He says, when you cry out, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Don't call me. Call them. You, your self-effort is going to save you? Save yourself. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me, listen, he who takes refuge in me will possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. Listen, this is what I was talking about. If you are not pursuing a relationship with the Lord, you're in exile. You just don't know it. And you may run in your sin and your freedom, but you're not really free. I've used this example before, but I've had 
lot of dogs in my life. We, we have a brand new puppy right now, so I can't say yet how this puppy's going to be. But I've had a lot of dogs in my life, and the most obedient dogs had the most freedom. I never chained that dog. I never had to put that dog in a yard. If I walked outside and, and called him, he came. If something was going on, if I wanted him in the truck, I'd holler, he'd jump in the truck. That dog had as much freedom as I could possibly give. I have also had dogs that would not listen to not a doggone thing I said. And those dogs lived in kennels, little three-by-five cages. And I'm sure if you could run over to them dogs and you could say, are you free? They'd say, yeah, I don't listen to nothing he says. But are you free? Jesus said, the Son has come to set you free. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. How do you get free in the Son? You obey Him. That's freedom. A lot of people nowadays running around in cages. The Lord says, the people who, who are with me, the people here He lays out, who take refuge in me, who come to me, they're not in exile. And it don't matter where you are. You could be in the middle of the darkest prison on earth. But if you're with the Lord, you're not in exile. You're with the Lord. You're in the land. No matter what is going on outside, it doesn't matter. You're part of the holy mountain. Verse 14, And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. God's saying He's making the way to Him Obvious. He takes away all the obstructions. <clears throat> he moves everything out of the way. It's like saying, I'm, I was looking for this road, but I couldn't find it. It's a little tiny dirt road in the middle of nowhere, and it was so hard to find. God saying, no, 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 no. That's not my road. My road is going to be built up. All obstructions moved out of the way. Everybody from far and wide can see it and go, look, there's God's road. The path to wisdom. Jesus stood on that path and said, follow me. God says, man, I, I'm, making the, I'm making the way. You don't have to wonder. I wonder what I should do. No. Follow Jesus. It's not hard. It's, it's not hard to understand. It may be hard to get our, our pride to want to go. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. The contrite, uh, broken hearted. Sorry for their sin. Repentant. The one who's able to stand before God and say, I'm sorry God, I'm a mess. Not the one who's full of pride and says they're good. But the one who's able to say, man, I'm a mess. I mess up. God, forgive me. <clears throat> who's willing to rely on him. <clears throat> the one who's lowly, humble before God. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Remember, if you are in the Lord, you're in the land. You're not in exile. You're really free. The people who think they're free aren't really free at all. They're in bondage. They're in bondage to sin. They're in bondage to the enemy. Look at verse 16. <clears throat> the Lord says, For I will not contend forever. I'm not going to argue with you forever. 
You ever have those conversations with people? Look, I'm not going to argue with you forever. I go a long ways. I think I got a long fuse. When it goes off, it goes off. It's hard to get the cork back in the bottle. But the idea is the Lord saying, look, I was patient for 430 years with the Canaanites. I don't know how many years for the Ninevites, how long for Assyria, how long for Babylon, but it's always in the hundreds. God's not quick to anger. He's slow. But he says, I'm not going to contend forever. I'm not going to beg you forever. I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would grow faint before me, the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. So what's God saying? God's saying, look, I, there are times when, when in godly anger, God corrects. He provides opportunity for correction. But sometimes the fool just takes the stripes and keeps on going. So God waits with long-suffering for repentance, desiring that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But he says, I won't do it forever. Judgment day will come. I will require it of a man. He went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal him. The day will come. A man calls on the name of the Lord. There's restoration. It's not God saying, oh, I'm done with you guys. No, he's saying, look, I, I've seen his ways, but I'll heal him. I know he's messed up, but I still love him. King David was a murdering scoundrel, but God loved him. He's a man after God's own heart. But what sets him apart? He was not slow of repentance. He was not slow to say, God, forgive me. There was a fear of the Lord in his life. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart, not his perfect behavior. It's a good thing, too, because your perfect behavior is not helping you either. It's your honesty before a holy God. Forgive me, Lord. And God says, I'll heal you. I'll lead you. I know you're a knucklehead. I'll give you comfort. I will create the fruit of your lips. I will bring peace. But look at verse 20. But the wicked, they're like the tossing of the sea. They're restless. They, they don't stop. They won't come. For it cannot be quiet. Its waters are tossed up in mire and dirt. There is no peace, says God, for the wicked. No peace. You cannot know it apart from the Lord. You cannot know it apart from having eyes for him. He's made a way. Isaiah 53, there's a way. There was a man, a suffering servant, who took on the sin, the iniquity of us all. He took it. He provided. All you have to do is turn to him and be healed. So God would say to Israel, turn to me. 
Why be destroyed? Come to me. Let me heal you. Let me restore you. Let me make you whole. This is God's plea for the land that was losing the righteous and running to the darkness. Amen? Won't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can come to you, Lord, to focus on you. God, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth that your word declares. God, that we would want to to know you. God, that we would want to humble ourselves before you and that you would lift us up. That's what you promise. That if we're broken, you heal us. You'll make us whole. But it's all you. It's what you do. It's, it's our pursuit of you that is holiness. It's our pursuit of you that is righteousness. That's the goal. Pursue the Lord. Allow him to change you. Allow him to mold you and make you. Not self-effort. Not, not what can I do apart from you. No, I'm not declaring my independence of God. I declare my dependence on him. I need you, Lord. You are my only hope. So God, we look to you and we pray, God, that you meet us in this place. Open our eyes and our understanding that we might find ourselves holy and completely in you. And we, God, will give you all the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. think I know how to play this anymore? I don't know. You know that the words are too far away.